Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse number 21. Mark 4. Verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this reading of your word. God, we commit this time to you, sacred time. Come in the person of your spirit. Transform our lives through this passage this morning so that we leave here differently than when we walked in these doors. For your glory, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I want you to think uh, for a moment about a time in your life when you were greatly disappointed by someone, or by something, or by some experience that failed to live up to your expectations. For me... If I were to be perfectly honest with you, it was, it was a job, a, a ministry position that I had genuinely believed that would be a long-term position in a very well-established church. <laughs> but by about six weeks in, I knew that I was in trouble. And that job, ministry position, only lasted ended up lasting about 11 months. It was the most disappointing experience of my life. Probably the most stressful experience of my life as well. 
And my disappointment was multiplied by the fact that I had such great expectations and things didn't turn out even remotely like I believed they would. Maybe for you, though, maybe it was, maybe it was your marriage that left you disappointed or, or maybe something that one of your children did. Or your, maybe it was your college experience or a career choice or a friendship, or other relationship. You see, we all go through life with great expectations. Expectations of our spouses, of our children, of our friends. Expectations of experiences. Expectations of ourselves. And ultimately, expectations of God. And when our expectations aren't met, disappointment, discouragement and even depression began to set in. But this morning, friends, I want us to focus on our expectations of Christ and His kingdom. And friends, we have to be very careful of our expectations of how Christ builds His kingdom. Because in our text today from Mark 4, Jesus shows us in a collection of brief parables that He did not come to meet our, ex, our, our great expectations. And that if we measure the growth of His kingdom by our own human standards and our own human expectations, we will not only be disappointed, we will miss Christ altogether. Indeed, this is why the Jews missed their Messiah and His kingdom, because He didn't come according to their expectations, the expectations of their blind eyes and, and their hard hearts. But friends, Christ and His kingdom have come, and they will come in fullness. And so the question before us today is, will we receive Christ for who He is, and His kingdom for what it is, or will He fail to meet our expectations as well? And so with this theme in mind, I want us to look through this passage, to work through it by way of three main thoughts. And the first is that the light of Jesus reveals what is hidden. Verse 21, And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket, or under a bed, and not on a stand? The image here is a lamp as a source of light. And the point that Jesus is making is that He is that lamp. The lamp here in this parable is Christ. Let's get that out of the way. The Gospel of John opens this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And Jesus, of course, is the master illustrator. 
And the illustration is clear. He is the lamp that has come into the world to shine upon it. He's come to shine. And His light reveals what is hidden. Look at verse 22. By the way, the initial passage is on the screen. I want you guys to have your Bibles open. Okay? I know the initial text is on the screen, but I'm constantly pointing us back. You need it open on your lap. Verse 22, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. See, the parables of Jesus are often filled with double meaning. And such is his statement here in verse 22. First, it picks up the theme of the parable of the sower, which we dealt with a couple of weeks ago before we had the the weather cancellations. the, The parable of the sower, that though the truth of Christ in his kingdom is now concealed in mystery to those who do not have ears to hear, it will ultimately be revealed to everyone. Everything given in secret will be made manifest, he says. And those who rejected him in stubborn unbelief will one day bow the knee and confess his lordship. Friends, remember that when you see the pundits on television mocking the Christian faith. They will one day bow the knee. Secondly, verse 22 is a convicting reminder that the light of Christ shines upon our darkness and it exposes the corruption of our hearts. This is, in fact, why so many reject Christ, because He exposes our darkness. Now, there will be many who hide behind the accusation, well, all Christians are just hypocrites. No, friends. First of all, that's, that's not true. And secondly, even if it were, <laughs> that is no excuse to deny Christ. It is no cloak to hide behind. We reject Christ because He exposes our darkness. John 3.19, which is, by the way, the... Verses that follow John 3.16, we always stop there, but friends, we need to read on. John 3.19 says, The light has come into the world, and people, what? Loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, lest his works should be exposed. The lamp of Jesus has come to shine. But oh, how often do we put His light under a basket or under a bed to conceal its brightness so that our dark hearts aren't exposed. And friends, churches do this all the time. I just watched this morning, uh, you know, I called you this week, I said my blood pressure has been kind of high and I'm I didn't help myself this morning looking on the internet and seeing a, a, a church that looked like a, a rock concert. They dressed their service up in pop concerts masquerading as worship. And then they bring out the cool pastor who gives a 20-minute self-help talk. 
but how wonderful we all are. And then everyone leaves feeling better about themselves, all the while the heart-piercing light of Jesus through His Word is concealed under a bed of man-centered pragmatism. Just whatever works to fill the pews. But the light of Jesus will not be hidden under a basket or a bed or a church pew. You ever wondered why you go into some churches and they turn the lights off? I don't get that. Why would you walk into a, a place of worship and the fog machines are blowing and the lights are turned off? He will not be hidden under a basket. And thus the warning in verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, didn't we? And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Be careful how you hear. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Just got some language here that we may not be all that really familiar with. But in the time and culture of Jesus, baskets were, were often used as tools of measurement. Much like we might use a five-gallon bucket today. And Jesus is saying that the same basket that we use to hide His light will be turned over whatever light we have in the same proportion, to the same degree, and our hearts will grow even darker. The point is that if we do not embrace the light of Jesus through the word of His kingdom, then what light we do have will be taken from us. And friends, we are seeing this on a national scale happening right now in America. We are descending greater and deeper into the depths of our darkness because we are attempting greater measures to conceal the light of truth. And so this warning is very real for all of us here who sit week after week in these very pews, and the light of Christ shining on our darkness through His Word, and yet we remain obstinate in our unbelief. Or maybe just indifferent to the truth of Christ. Just indifference. Indifference, friends, will damn you. Do You come to church week after week, Feel nothing in your heart and your soul. You are not moved by any of the... It doesn't matter that we don't have a rock band up here. It doesn't matter that we don't have the greatest presentation. But you come here and are not moved in your spirit by the truths that we sing, by the prayers that we pray, by the, the, the flesh and blood visibility of other believers. The indifference to Christ. The longer we stay that way, we are in greater danger of having 
what little light we have put out in judgment. What darkness is in your heart this morning, friends? What's there? Do you even know it? The prophet Jeremiah said, The heart is deceptive above all things. Who can know it? What darkness is in our hearts that Christ must shine on this morning? Is it a sin that you're playing around with? Is it a persistent sin that you have perhaps gotten comfortable with? Is it a resistance to the hard truths of Scripture? Is it viewing everyone through a self-righteous legalism? Or is it a spiritual complacency? Friends, whatever it is, come to the lamp that is Christ this morning and embrace His light. Secondly, in this passage we see the Word of Christ produces by its own power. Look down to verse 26. And He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and it grows and he knows not how. (laughs) The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus reminds us again that he is using these parables to teach us about what? About his kingdom. We've already seen from the parable of the sower that the seed is Christ's word. It is the word. The gospel, the word of the gospel, the word of truth. And now Jesus shows us the power of that word to produce growth in and of itself. A farmer scatters the seed on the ground. And then he goes to bed. He gets up day after day. The seed is watered by rain. It is nurtured by the earth and by the light of the sun. And over time, inexplicably to the farmer, it grows to produce a harvest. The picture is profoundly simple, friends. But yet it is an encouragement and also a rebuke for us this morning. It's encouraging because it holds before us the truth that the the, the, the efficacy of Christ's word does not depend on us. And friends, this parable right here, these verses right here, is what gives me peace to lay down and sleep on a Sunday night. Week after week, knowing that if I have faithfully, to my, the best of my ability, scattered the word of Christ into the hearts of all of us gathered here this morning, including myself, then the rest is up to God. But friends, it is not my responsibility to save any of you. Nor is it within my power to do so. No one will stand before the throne of judgment on that last and final great day and say, but I had him as a pastor. It won't work. 
There is nothing that I or you in your own personal evangelism can say or do to open spiritually blind eyes and stony hearts of unbelief. We can't do it. The power is in the Word and in the Word alone. But, friends, it requires patience. Patience. Notice the progression in verses 27 and 28. The farmer scatters his seed. And then he waits for the first blade. And then the ear. And then the full grain in the ear. And then finally the the grain is ripe for harvest. You see, there's a progression here. And this farmer must be patient. He doesn't sit and stare at the seed all day and worry about it. He doesn't even know how it grows. He just plants it and it, 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 it grows. That's the power of the Word of Christ in our lives. And friends, if you are faithful in scattering the seed of Christ in the lives of those you love, then go to sleep at night. Go to bed. Go to sleep. Let it go and wait for the harvest. It may take a lifetime. But if God is gracious to grant ears to hear, then the Word will take root. It is the most powerful thing in this universe. Friends, realize what you hold in your hands this morning, in your lap. is the most powerful force in this creation. What else do you need? Spread the word. Scatter the word. It will take root. Do not be discouraged if the harvest is not immediate, friends. It is rarely, it is never immediate. It's never immediate. That's the encouragement. But here's the the convicting rebuke. It is a much-needed rebuke of our impatient and pragmatic ways in the church today. You see, we live in a results-driven culture, don't we? It is shocking how much this kind of business-minded, production-oriented thinking has infected the church. In America, we have traded confidence in the clear and faithful proclamation of the Word of God for trendy programs and entertaining presentations like the ones I told you about this morning (laughs) that attract Christian consumers to our churches. And we equate filling the pews with growth. Preaching has been toned down. Friends, I've listened to enough of this stuff. Know what I'm talking about. These celebrity pastors out there preaching their messages. The language of sin is avoided. <laughs> sin is now referred to as disability, discouragement. Not cosmic treason against the holy God. 
countercultural doctrines like the six-day literal creation of the universe, the total depravity of man, Christ as the only and exclusive way to salvation, the inerrancy and sufficiency of, of Scripture, and of course, biblical sexuality are minimized. They don't ever talk about this stuff. They're altogether ignored. Meanwhile, we are seeing nationally known pastors and Christian leaders fall like flies, friends, to either sexual sin, financial corruption, or the abuse of their power. In the past two weeks alone, we have seen a world-renowned Christian apologist be exposed for years of sexual abuse. And then, a nationally respected evangelical pastor and author, probably you guys, some of you may have some of his books on your shelf, apologized for preaching against homosexual sin in 2004 <laughs> in a sermon. I don't know about you, but the first thing that came to my mind was why 2004 was the last time he preached against homosexuality. and has something to apologize to the cancel culture for. By the way, friends, the apology is never enough for them. Make no mistake, they want to shut us up. Young adults raised in a church, in church-going homes are turning their backs on the Christian faith. A rate of 7 out of 10, unlike anything we've ever seen in, in America. And yet the American church just keeps pumping money into more trendy programs and entertaining presentations. Brighter lights, denser fog machines, better music, cool televisions and LED light displays. Hipster youth pastors. Friends, what we need is to get rid of the cool pastors and trendy programs and get some men on fire back in our pulpits who will preach Christ and Him crucified and then who will get out of the way so that the Word of God can produce its harvest. That's what we need. If we are to see a revival, it will start from pulpits that are smoking with truth. Verse 29 says, when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Friends, we must resist impatience. We must resist the urge to usher in the kingdom according to our own expectations. We must resist reaping the harvest before it is ready. We must beware man-centered, pragmatic expectations. And friends, listen to me. I feel this pressure acutely as a pastor of a small church to produce results, to get people in the pews. And here's the scary part. You ready for this one? We could probably do it. We could buy into the attractional church model and have all the stuff that the church growth experts and, and all their surveys tell us people are looking for. I'm still looking to find my first survey in this book. 
And we could fill these pews. But it would be with consumers and not disciples. But if we are faithful to proclaim the undiluted Word of God, Word of Christ, Word of the Kingdom, Word of the Gospel here at this church and not get distracted by all the felt needs of consumeristic Christians. America's full of them. then the Word of God will produce a harvest of souls. And if God is gracious, we will see this church grow beyond just getting people in the pews. The power is in the Word. That is what Jesus is teaching us here. Lastly, we see in this passage, the kingdom of of Jesus grows in unexpected ways. He grows in unexpected ways. Look at verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds of the, on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. So Jesus shows us here in these verses the mysterious nature of His kingdom. You see, it's all a mystery. Like we read this morning in John 3, conversion is a mystery. It's like the wind. The kingdom is a mystery. How it grows, it starts out as a little mustard seed. And we are again confronted with the problem of our expectations because His kingdom is not compared to military might or political power, is it? He didn't talk like that. He could have. He compares it to a tiny mustard seed. Now, now friends, bear with me for a moment. There is an important apologetics issue here that we need to deal with. I I, I want you to, to be informed. The mustard seed isn't actually the smallest seed. Okay? though it was the smallest seed that this ancient audience would have known. Jesus didn't go to first century Palestine, first century Israel, and talk about computers and Wi-Fi. He spoke to them in language that they understood what they knew. This phrase, a grain of mustard seed, was... To them, it was a proverbial saying in this culture that was used to describe something insignificant and small. And so Jesus is not making here a scientific statement about the size of the smallest seed on the earth, but about how greatness can grow out of insignificance. So keep that in mind, friends, when your skeptic friends say, Aha! The Bible is wrong here. No, it's not. It's not wrong. Never. The point is that the kingdom of God comes to us in insignificant and unexpected ways. Jesus was a carpenter turned rabbi. 
His disciples were the sons of thunder, (laughs) hot-headed fishermen, tax collectors and just ordinary men. He even had one, one disciple that was called a zealot. Jesus was arrested, he was tried, he was crucified, and the movement that once had such great expectations now seemed dead at his crucifixion. Friends, if Jesus and his disciples were evaluated by modern standards, they would be total failures. But now, this insignificant seed, little mustard seed of the kingdom has grown to the farthest reaches of the earth so that even, and he uses this language here that we need to talk about, the birds of the air can come and nest in it. What is that? That's an Old Testament image for the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. This kingdom would not stay contained in the borders of Canaan land. It would not stay within Israel. It would grow and expand so that even the Gentiles would be included. The 19th century bishop, Anglican, Anglican bishop, by the way, J.C. Ryle, he says this, Let us leave the parable with a resolution never to despise any movement or instrumentality in the church of Christ because at first it is weak and small. Let us remember the manger of Bethlehem and learn wisdom. The name of him who lay there, a helpless infant, is now known all over the globe. (laughs) The little seed which was planted in the day when Jesus was born has become a great tree, and we ourselves are rejoicing under its shadow as, as Gentiles. Uh, Bishop Ryle says, Let it be a settled principle in our religion never to despise small things. One child may be the beginning of a flourishing school. One conversion may be the beginning of a mighty church. One word, the beginning of some blessed Christian enterprise. One seed, the beginning of a rich harvest of saved souls. Friends, for every well-known Christian in church history, all the Luthers, the Calvins, the Zwinglies, all of them, there was a seed sown in their hearts by someone insignificant and unknown that grew into a life that changed the world. (laughs) So, oh, Christian... Do not despair your menial efforts. We live in a celebrity-driven culture that now has had to learn this myself. We have what is called influencers. Anyone ever heard of those? I had to ask my wife what they were. Evidently, she follows a few of them on Instagram. Influencers. These are, these are people with large internet followings who post videos of, them, of themselves online talking about all sorts of things. I don't have anything wrong with that. You know, whatever. 
What I want to tell you is this. Listen to me this morning. The greatest influencers walking this planet today, friends, are those who scatter the seed of God's Word. You don't know their names. They don't have 20,000 on Instagram or Twitter. They don't have a blue check by their name. They work at the post office. They work at Walmart. They work somewhere in an office cubicle. But they may host a discipleship group in their home. They share the Sunday sermon with people on the internet. They invite people to the fellowship dinner at the church. Or maybe they're the homeschooling mom whose greatest sphere of influence is the kitchen table. Or the dad who will never teach a Sunday school class. But he takes his children out for ice cream once a week and he reviews the Sunday message with them or reads through the latest magazine from Answers in Genesis. By the way, we have this on our table. It's free. Take them. Take them. Take them for your children. These insignificant seeds, over time and through many storms and hard seasons, through many dangers, toils, and snares, they will grow in unexpected ways to produce a harvest. That is the hope that we need to take away from this text this morning. So let's drop our great expectations and start scattering seed and watch the Word of Christ do its work. Verse 33, we're, we're closing. Oh, with many such parables, He spoke the Word to them as they were able to hear it. Are you able this morning to hear this? Verse 34, he did not speak to them without a parable. He's talking to the crowds here. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And as this parabolic teaching series of Jesus comes to a close, Mark tells us that he was speaking in such a way so that only those with ears to hear would understand. What about you this morning, friend? Are you able to hear what Jesus is saying through these parables. Maybe you have lived your life with great expectations. But now you find yourself disappointed on a path of hopelessness. And all this really doesn't mean much to you because the seed hasn't yet taken up root in your heart. And you are unable to hear the voice of Jesus through his word this morning. Friend, if that's you, I appeal to you at this very moment, turn from yourself, turn from your sin, and trust in Christ. Abandon any man-made idea of Jesus. Look to the Christ of Scripture, the one who is God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life died a sacrificial death so that all who would trust in Him could be made righteous before a holy God who will judge sin. And really that's a theme, the judgment of sin. That's a theme in this passage that I didn't really say anything about. But it's here. Judgment. When the harvest comes and the mustard seed kingdom has grown into its fullness and the sickle of God's judgment 
will be put to the grain. And whatever is not pure, whatever is not real, will be separated and thrown into the fire. By the way, when you read this little section of parables in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew follows it with the parable of the wheat and the tares. The false conversions, the false seeds that are planted will be separated and thrown into the fire. So this morning, friend, be careful how you hear. The light of Christ is shining on us this morning. Run to Him in repentance, in faith. Embrace the lamp, embrace the light. And may His Word take root in our hearts and bring light to our darkness. Let's pray.